Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are on Chapter 18, Tribute to My Father. One night in September 1956, I had a very vivid dream. I saw my father lying on the ground, reaching out to me across a barrier I could not climb. The next day, the telegram came. He had had a severe heart attack, and the condition of his heart was such that he was not likely to live long. A missionary came from another station to look after the girls, and I flew home. My first trip in a plane. While the rather anxious hours passed, I seemed to see him moving through the years as in a film. He was home seldom between meetings, visits and speaking tours in North, South America, Australia, New Zealand, North and South Africa, Palestine, and all over the British Isles to see his children through rose-colored spectacles. No one could say that we were always easy to manage, but I never realized it. He left the heavier side of our upbringing and all our serious training to our mother, never doubting that she was far more competent than himself in such matters. And on his short visits, the usual rule and regulations went west. They were riotous occasions of merriment with games of bears under the nursery table, charades, campfires, picnics, Midnight feasts and long, long tramps over the hills are to the Upton on the Servine. Yet this abandonment caused none of the usual disillusionments or unruliness that often follows treats and irregularities, for he obviously considered us to be good children, and as many others will too, we temporarily became what he considered us to be. Besides, he was so infectiously happy that no one wanted to spoil it by being contrary or unruly. Without a word on the subject, he would leave us with the abiding impression that goodness was desirable and utterly joyful, the only real fun in life. His influence over us must have been so largely unconscious for influence over us must have been so largely unconscious influence over us must have been so largely unconscious for he very seldom actively taught us anything at that age, although he could speak delightfully delightfully to Sunday schools on occasion. He did not consider himself gifted. He very seldom actively taught us anything at that age. Although he could speak delightfully to Sunday schools on occasion, he did not consider himself gifted. He very seldom actively taught us anything at that age. He did not consider himself gifted with children, and he left all the simplification of spiritual matters to his wife, of whose patience thorough Bible teaching often could be written. She would come down to the level of the smallest, but he would retain his own level, and sometimes opening a door, allowing a little child to catch a glimpse of mystical glory far beyond it, and yet they're more beautiful for being only vaguely understood. I remember how he lifted me as a seven-year-old on to his knee, and almost shyly, in a voice that sometimes trembled with emotion, read aloud all nineteen verses of Mrs. Cousin's hymn based on Samuel Rutherford's last sayings. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. And the result? I was thrilled and transfixed. There was a feeling that Daddy had entrusted me to share something that mattered to him. And there was a whole new world of bright imaginary to explore and revel in, and eventually, after many years, to understand. In a surprisingly short time, I had learned all 19 verses off by heart. And the old Scottish divine could have smiled had he watched the little brown tomboy in the red bathing dress climbing in a perilously steep waterfall in the stream bed and murmuring to herself. Deep waters crossed my pathway, the hedge of thorns were sharp. 
Now all these lie behind me. Oh, for a well-tuned harp. Another memory of, of him arriving home a day earlier than expected after a long absence abroad and walking up alone from the station and meeting John in a pram, wheeled by a local girl who was helping temporarily. The round, sanjin face and something about the pram struck him as familiar. He stopped and gazed. Excuse me, he asked with a customary politeness, but could you tell me, is this by any chance my baby? I'm sure I couldn't possibly say, sir, replied the girl haughtily, and made off in a hurry. He was gloriously hospitable. Do drop in to tea, he would urge strange families at the Sunday morning service. Sometimes, however, he would fail to mention it at home, an enthusiastic group would arrive at the front door just as we were finishing tea. I'm afraid you were expecting six, but we're only four. My mother was a genius at carrying off these situations, but we children rather spoiled her efforts by relapsing into helpless giggles. The family learned to be ready for anything, and Sunday tea became a standing joke. Yet apart from slight lapses of memory, he was the soul of courtesy and always treated his wife and daughters like queens. He loved to help in the house, but apart from looking after babies at which he excelled, his efforts were not always successful. Some rather elegant ladies were once expected to tea, and my mother, who was not very well, went off to rest after dinner, making my father promise to wake her up in time to prepare. She was often awoken at the last minute by her beaming husband. Nothing to worry about, darling, he proclaimed triumphantly. All is ready, and he ushered her excitingly into the sitting room to a table laden with piles and piles of thick, sparingly buttered doorsteps. The ladies were actually arriving, and there was an apologetic whisper and laughter in the passage, but our guests were sports, and they munched gallantly away, and the party was a great success. And the combination of my mother's simple, straightforward teaching and the sense of my father's mysticism that was beyond us, there was a strength and safeguard against the modern tendency, resulting perhaps from the oversimplification of divine truth, to consider religion the property of flannel graph and the primary Sunday school, and to abandon it in adolescence. We might wriggle and yawn and feel bored in the Sunday services, but none of us looking at that shiny, lifted face and listening to that voice that trembled with adoring love could maintain for a moment that the breaking of bread was really boring, and it left us with a feeling of mangled sadness and expectation. Sadness because we were small and wicked and incorrigibly merry, and so we could see nothing. An expectation because we might one day grow up and understand and see what Daddy saw. And perhaps that was why so much of our play centered around the story of, of King Arthur and his knights and the Holy Grail, and the character that I invariably impersonated on my lonely rambles was Sir Galahad. What the Holy Grail was, none of us knew, but one must be very pure in heart, like Daddy, to see it. So while our mother mourned the passing of the years and the tumbling babies that seemed to turn into tough little boys and girls overnight, he exalted at each stage of our growth and bent his scholarly mind to each new achievement. He delighted in the exceedingly amateur family orchestra and would become absorbed in a game of chess with a very small son. He would give the same concentrated consideration to the misspelt literary efforts of a little daughter as he would to his own Greek commentary. In fact, he was the only person to whom I was not ashamed to show them. With that sanity which so characterized him, he recognized himself as a man set apart, and of such certain standards are required. 
He recognized us as ordinary, healthy children, and of such certain standards are required. He never confused the species. Provided we were not malicious, he did not quell us when we mercilessly mimicked our elders and betters, and some of us were truly gifted in that direction. But he never spoke one discourteous word about anybody, and we never heard an impatient or unloving word between him and our mother. He encouraged us to enjoy ourselves, and he loved to give us treats. But we knew he denied himself and kept under his body. And this positive, radiant holiness that went on its own way, seldom criticizing or scolding, was extraordinarily constructive and controlling. So he grew up, and he watched and waited, trying never to force upon us the spiritual riches he had stored up for us until we were ready. But during our teenage years, he began to introduce us to his own methods of Bible study, and each of us would testify that he would open up the book to us as no one else had ever done. As a teenager and later, I loved to go with him to summer conferences for young people when he was in England and see the very evident appreciation of his listeners and how often he was a center of a group of eager young men and women or engaged in private session with one or another. It may have been the absoluteness of his standards or the superhuman demands he made on, on them. It may have been the tender humor and understanding with which he mingled those demands or may have been his own humility. At all events, many hundreds of people wrote after his death from all parts of the world and all spheres of life to pay tribute to the profound influence he had had on them in the early years. And some of these are men and women who have become mightily leaders for God. He did more to make Christ real to me than anyone else, wrote a missionary wife in Zimbabwe. He appealed equally to the simplest person and to the most intellectual I remember a talk he gave once on Luke 4, where Jesus, as his custom was, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He emphasized the importance of example, quoting John Bunyan's word, I was very careful to give my children no occasion to blame, lest they should not be willing to go on the pilgrimage. Not an easy thing to say, with your son or daughter sitting in the audience weighing up every word. But in the matter of practicing what he preached, he passed the test every time. We wanted to share him with our friends, and as we approached or reached university studies, we had for some years in the Eastern holidays what we call the Applegarth Conference, Applegarth being our second home in Marville. To this lively group of young people, he and my mother gave their very best. Morning and evening sessions were given over to serious study and discussion, and the afternoons to wonderful picnic and rambles and high teas organized by my mother who took the whole crowd of hungry, noisy creatures straight to her heart. They discussed their problems with my father with unusual freedom because he was never shocked or surprised, and his humor and sympathy and broad understanding must have led many a rebellious, puzzled young Christians into the right decisions and paths of peace. Sometimes he said to us, and which I wrote down as went as follows, the arrangement of the lines is mine. You can have this world's peace and enjoy it, provided you shut your eyes to the future. Shut the gates of your soul to yesterday. The peace that Jesus gives is precisely the opposite. It throws back the gates of yesterday, showing sins forgiven. And as for tomorrow, it opens its gates and shows the future, radiant with promised grace and with a sure hope of seeing his face. 
This is a, a rather long chapter, so I'm going to cut this chapter into two parts. And so we'll finish the second part tomorrow. I love you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you tomorrow. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. Bye-bye.